0: First question, what are your most comfortable shoes?
1: Uh, let's see. I just got these ridiculous um, Birkenstock flip-flops that have nice arch support. It's just like basically a molded flip-flop. Yeah. So it, is, so it has a little bit more extra foot support for my 41 year old feet which i was into i was like this is pleasant it's better than just those flat floppy things
0: i have no arch support on my feet they're just flat Mm -hmm. yeah um and i don't really do flip-flops so maybe i'll have to check out the birkenstocks (laughs) do you have any guilty pleasure foods
1: my current one is right here Trader Joe's pretzel, peanut butter pretzels. Apple and peanut butter is my go-to, and I don't even think it's a guilty pleasure. I just think it's a wonderful pleasure with no downsides. It's protein, right. it's fiber.
0: You could argue- does the job. Well, you know, there's saturated fats and there are some triglycerides, but. <laughs> 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 I'm just, I'm just trying, to, trying to do the devil's advocate there. Steal my joy. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I
1: see that. Um, do you hear that sound?
0: Yeah, I hear that sound.
1: What is that sound? Is that coming from my devices?
0: Hello. Hello, what hello. What is that sound? Can you hear me? I can, yeah.
1: I don't know if I don't know if you're going to use the comfort food and comfortable shoes audio or if you're just buttering me up, but you can, it will be usable.
0: <laughs> I'm not I'm not buttering you up. These are like legitimate questions I just want to okay. know like you, you, you talk to people like all the time, there's that charging set. <laughs> yeah, so weird. What is that? Dad, is, it, is your phone plugged? I pl- don't know. That was me chatting with Anna Sale, host and managing editor of Death, Sex, and Money. She's also the author of the book, Let's Talk About Hard Things. I'm Jude Brewer. Welcome to Storybound.
1: because I'm char- my laptop is charging. Holy holy smokes. That's, I think we're fin- I think we figured it out.
0: That's crazy. Why would it play internally? I don't
1: know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I did. I legitimately wanted to know those answers to questions cuz you talk to people all the time. The earliest I know about you is that you would go and interview people in public versus like interviewing a, a lobbyist or someone like that essentially to get their opinions on elections at the time, which you don't cover anymore, good for you. That sounds, (laughs) that just sounds not fun. That sounds not, (laughs) not fun.
1: It was. I, I loved parts of it and parts of it I was ready to leave behind covering politics, that's for sure.
0: Well, I mean, it sounds like what you were doing was you were obviously taking, you were taking an interest of yours, which is talking to people and actually getting a perspective that is wholly untainted, by messaging, it's just them hmm. living through their lives and living through the actual issues that policy is going to affect them. So I assume you were coming at it from that angle, but was it? what did the experience of doing it teach you?
1: Hmm. Well, first of all, I would say we are all tainted by messages not untainted, so I was more trying to understand how different people were tainted in different ways by messages. (laughs) What's the way you're specifically tainted by messages? Um, I I feel like, yeah, my interest definitely became covering politics. I I, I started just as a very conventional state house reporter covering um, lawmakers and lobbyists and, you know, how a bill becomes a law, et cetera, and then I got really... I just started to feel like I wanted to be doing more reporting where the politics and the policy that people were talking about, that I was connecting that back to real people's lives and asking them about what was going on in their lives and what they felt like they needed or what they felt like was not being heard. You know, when I think about my years of just, like, driving around in rental cars, stopping at the side of the road to try to get, you know, busy parents leaving a shopping mall to talk to me about who they were going to vote for in the 2012 election, like I think what that gave me was you just have to very quickly make your case for why you're worth talking to. And I can picture, like I would be roving around with like a kit and a microphone and headphones on and run up to people who were like trying to go about their days and I'd say, can I have five minutes of your time? I'm a politics reporter for public radio, I'm, you know, wanting to understand what's going on in this county as far as the selection. And, and I, can I ask you a few questions? It's not a quiz. There's no wrong answers. I wanna understand what's going on in your life. And then you just ask open-ended questions. And then you ask follow-ups. You listen to what they say. And then you find, oh, most people like that feeling, of feeling listened to, and that it's rare.
0: What was the first time you touched a recorder or played with tape or headphones and using that equipment?
1: You know, I was a big mixtape maker in the 90s in junior high and high school. I had like a boom box with two cassettes and I would make masterpieces. And then I didn't do radio at all in college. So I was a year out of college and I saw a job posting at West Virginia Public Radio, which is in Charleston, West Virginia, which is where I grew up and where I'd moved back after college. And it, I, it's sort of like, oh, you're allowed to do that. Like you can you can do that. And so I like, I basically, I, I had, like, two clips from writing for alternative newspapers, and I had my undergraduate history thesis, which was, like, like, an inch thick, like Kinko's, like, you know, bound thesis. And I took that in for my interview to be a reporter, and I just said, like, I can write, I can research. I'm hungry, I wanna do this, but you have to teach me everything technical, and they did, and I it was wonderful. It was a wonderful place to learn how to be a journalist. You know, I was a history major. I liked thinking about how decisions, official decisions affected people's lives in both intended and unintended ways. And Mm -hmm. I liked exploring those stories. You know, I didn't know anybody in radio. I didn't know how to do it. And they had to teach me at the time I started, it was 2005, Mm -hmm. we used mini disc recorders. Oh, oh,
0: I love my, I miss my mini disc recorder. That was so much fun. So I live on the West Coast, you live on Mm -hmm. the West part of East Coast, specifically West Virginia, correct? At the
1: time, now I'm in Berkeley, California.
0: Okay. West Coast. West Coast, you're you're here, you made it. Okay, great. So how did the stereotypes you grew up being fed in Appalachia compared to your own personal experiences, either growing up, once you started interviewing people mm-hmm. that you would find just walking around town, like how did those pair up? I
1: mean, you know, when you grow up in a place like West Virginia, you, and I write about this in my book, because I was like, how? I, I there's a chapter in my book about identity, and I was like, what is the way that I have felt for me, the way I have felt the most like, oh, these are the people who I feel a sense of belonging and I feel othered by all these other people is mostly The first ways I felt that was being a West Virginian. And when you grow up in West Virginia, you have an awareness that, like, people outside the state either look down on you or, more often, they don't think about you at all, which hurts more. I thought a lot about this as a, you know, young person and then as a young reporter. Like, why are we so obsessed with the West Virginia Mountaineers football team? Like, why is it so powerfully meaningful when, one of the analysts like talks about how we have a good quarterback like it matters to us and it's because people are paying attention to us and they're saying things that are positive and like finally there's like a, for a moment a brief shining moment there's a spotlight on our state that's positive and i think when you grow up in a place like that you have a sense of you know i to be clear i grew up my dad's a doctor. I grew up uh, on top of a hill, and like class is like geography is oriented by geography in West Virginia. So on top of a hill, I went to the public school that was on top of the hill. I'm not like from a holler, you know. I did not play banjo on my porch, but I like, of course, like have like a really in-depth bluegrass collection because like you lean in to your Appalachianness, your, right. your West Virginianess, and I. And I did before I left West Virginia, but definitely after I left for college, I went to Stanford. And then I was just like, oh, this is the thing that makes me distinctive and interesting. So I am going to like really go hard in my West Virginianess. And that's what I did.
0: And then you started Death, Sex and Money in back in 2014, which is only eight years ago. Doesn't it feel like twice as long at this point? (laughs)
1: Uh, it feels like I've been doing it a long time. I think it feels like I've been doing it a long time because so much has happened in my life. So much change has happened in my life over the course of making the show. Mm-hmm. Like, I became a parent, I got married, I moved to California. But yeah, I I, I was just kind of calculating in my head. I think I have now been making death, sex, and money for longer than I was a reporter before. Mm-hmm. So my media career has now been mostly making death, sex, and money. One of the biggest shifts was moving from making something where people would run into my work by turning on their radio or being in their car versus like making something where you have to continually make an argument for someone to press play. So that was the first big shift when I shifted from radio to podcasting. And now, you know, in 2022, like to think about what podcasting was like in 2014. It's just so quaint to think uh-huh. about <laughs> the landscape back then compared to now.
0: It is very different. And what's interesting is that I've only been doing podcasting since 2016. And I noticed, you know, like before I even got into it, I did, I worked like 24 different jobs across different industries. And when I would work through those, it was very common that your personal life shouldn't somehow find a way Mm -hmm. into your work life. Mm -hmm. There had to be the separation. And yet I've realized that my personal life and the personal lives within my, because there's a personal life within your work life as well. That Mm -hmm. has to get acknowledged. I mean, you are living, a most people are living a third of their lives at work and that's where they they learn quite a bit about themselves so now it's weird that how that has actually directly informed my personal life does inform my work life now mm-hmm. in podcasting in a very significant way that i wish the rest of the working world could adapt for a lot of people who they they I come from a background where I worked in, in warehousing or in, in canneries, mm. um, more blue collar work where it's about having a stable job. It's not necessarily about, well, I have this dream. I want to mm-hmm. do this mm-hmm. thing someday. It's mm-hmm. like, well, I have a family to provide for. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I always wonder how there's a way we can reshape that work culture that tries to push out the personal that I think is actually what's stopping a lot of people from doing some really significant emotional work, like going to therapy or addressing themselves, because somehow people are just supposed to separate their personal life from everything.
1: It's not exactly the same as what you're saying, but when I think about starting my career in West Virginia, it was in a place where you know I worked for a state agency, so I had good public benefits, mm-hmm. I was at part of a retirement plan, mm-hmm. and you know, I was 25 years old looking around going like, hmm, like how long am I going to be working in this newsroom? Mm-hmm. And I I can remember feeling a sense of like, am I alone in this itchiness? Like what, do I get to, do I deserve this itchiness of wanting Ooh. to do more? You know? Right, um, right. Because I had a good job, a good mm-hmm. stable job that was creative. I got paid to do creative work and had a pension. Like how, how could you ask for more? And I think that part of leaving West Virginia for me, and I think maybe part of like a sort of like, I don't know if it's like economic class or cultural class or something, is like giving myself permission to want to be entrepreneurial because it's it's like risky.
0: And you are a mother now. Mm-hmm. How old is your child?
1: I have got two children. I have a kindergartner and I have a preschooler, so five
0: and three. Oh, I'm so excited. So my stepdaughters are five and seven. Oh, cool. It's been a really interesting time the past couple of years because they are they're experiencing stuff at their age obviously we didn't experience. Yeah. And there's a really intense amount of social anxiety. So for your for your kindergartner, what's school been like?
1: You know, we dodged the most difficult time in public school because she's in kindergarten now. So she got to start school on time with masks. And Berkeley Public Schools, they've done a fantastic job. I love it. Love the testing, love mm-hmm. the teachers, love mm-hmm. the, the the COVID testing. I mean, it's just been a really they have made it as normal as possible in these very abnormal times so we didn't have to do zoom uh, kindergarten we did have to do some zoom preschool for some dark days in <laughs> spring of 2020 <laughs> and that's well, a 3 year old trying to do a sing along with a, on a 20 minute zoom with her preschool teacher like that was bummer but um you know it is is totally bizarro but you know they know about nose tests they just you know I'm going to th- put their nose up in the air and let me like mm-hmm. stick the swab in you know once a week they know the drill so
0: right it's weird it is weird and them acclimating to zoom or virtual interactions with humans at that age Right now, it's really helpful. I FaceTime with them if I'm at the studio working and they're with their mom for you know a few hours or something, I will like to call them on my lunch. So we'll, for an hour, we'll play with the video filters mm-hmm, on Zoom cool. and, and, and whatnot. And it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's playing. It's just as you would it. You're playing pretend, you know, you're just yeah. doing it through this device. It's just weird how that, how they're experiencing that. And I do kind of obsess a bit over what how their brain chemistry is going to adapt in the next like 10, 15 years versus ours? Because I remember our first personal computer got when I was about 10 and I was messing around with it. Now I'm seeing my seven-year-old do things on the Like I'm teaching her how to print stuff and like she's becoming more adept yeah. at it than my own There's,
1: mother. They're <laughs> such good at swiping, they're so good at swiping Yes. So, early on, they get it. I mean, the thing that I think about a lot is they have no appreciation for, like, running into delightful cultural moments that aren't on demand. You know, like, we get in the car and they want to listen to Despacito or Hips Don't Lie. And it's like, no matter where we are, that's what <laughs> they want to listen to right now. And it's like, sometimes we're going to listen to the radio, so you're not in charge. And you can learn that you're not in charge of everything, you know? like. um But yeah, like on demand, I I have to say sometimes like, no, 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 we're not pulling up on my phone, not doing the phone. But the idea that everything is available to you at any moment when you have a device with you is, is a stunning way to think the world is organized.
0: I used to think idealistically that if I were to be in the role of parenting, that I would be able to somehow shut away the current world and then just say, Okay, we're gonna you're gonna watch all your movies on a on a VCR. where <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you're gonna have a Game Boy and not a, a Nintendo Switch or something. Like you're not gonna. I I wanted to try and do that in stages. In number one, as a step parent, because there was already a life before, a little bit of a life mm-hmm. before me. So it's give give or take with that. But still, it's idealistic because they're just learning differently. They're just in a completely different world than I was as a kid. And so it has proven to be the most challenging to me as a person, just how do you adapt as a teacher to your kid? I'm sure you've felt, I'm sure you've already felt deeply challenged already as a person to some extent.
1: I think it's like also, I mean, this is not an original thought, but like you know, there's the ways I want my children to be, and then there's the ways that they see me being and i I feel like you know their parents are their dad and my relationship to our devices are it's not good, <laughs> you know, so like to see to see them like what they do when they get like an old iPhone that's like they found in a drawer, like they want mm-hmm. to like pretend to hold it and look at it and you know that's kind of gross and embarrassing (laughs) when you see them doing that
0: you know there's a lot more conversation up ahead we'll be right back after this quick commercial break you are listening to storybound with author anna sale and we're talking about her book let's talk about hard things as well as some hard things to talk about. Because I'm talking to you and you're a person who, at least it's built and notoriously that you like to have hard conversations, <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? <laughs> I so probably, they say. <laughs> <laughs> I probably had one of the hardest conversations about only two or three days ago. Mm-hmm. And it was with my partner and we were just having a spirited debate. We don't argue, we don't get nasty. I've been in previous relationships like that. We both have a history of that. You know, our partnership works on the fact that we always trust the other person and we give them the benefit of the doubt and there's there's real love, right? So we're just having a spirited debate. And then when it tends to get, if it does get emotional, another person you can see is crying, there's a little bit more of passion there. It's all of a sudden it folds, debate's over, let's not do this, we hug, it's fine, right? It never <laughs> really happens when the girls are with us. And so the thing is, mm-hmm. is when we did have a spirit debate, there was a moment where a five-year-old steps in the hallway, looks kind of to the side and is looking right at me, while my partner's kind of walking toward me and we're just talking and it's just, it's intense. It's not mean, it's not angry. And I grew up in a very, a very angry household. I used to have dreams up till I was 10 or 12 of my parents just fighting and, brandishing a knife on the other person. This is stuff Mm. I had to work through in therapy. Mm -hmm. So in that moment, when she peeks out, that's actually what made me start crying was because I was deeply afraid that I was putting them in a situation that I was in over and over and over again and really shaped me for a majority of my life. Mm -hmm. What was great about it was the recovery and the repair where the girls just get to see me cry Mm -hmm. and they get to see their mom and I like hug and everything's fine. And I even get to just explain to them, hey, there are times where you're upset at your mom. There are times you're upset at your sister. There are times where you've screamed at me. And then she goes, mm-hmm. yeah, I've screamed at you before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but like, that's the reality of parenting. I feel that at least growing up, it really wasn't talked about or acknowledged. The idea of how do you live with your feelings and how do you act appropriately with them? How do you treat people appropriately with them? And it's I am really um, there's no way I could take it for granted now how these first several years of a kid's life is very important for that development. I don't I don't know if that's kind of just a rant, but i'm I'm curious if that does kind of touch upon anything for you. Oh, it
1: uh, touches on a lot something about... The last two years has been—it's you know, we, my family. We've all been in very close quarters with one another. We've been in stressful environments, stressful times with one another. There's been conflict between you know. There's nothing that makes me feel more ridiculous than like 15 minutes after looking back at the way I was like, you know, sniping with it like just kind of like sparring with a five-year-old. You know, you're like, come on, Anna, yeah. like rise above, like. <laughs> <laughs> bring your loving kindness voice like you're the grown up here but I definitely have you know get caught up and and the, the with my husband and I like we don't we we argue we disagree and we don't mm-hmm. you know and and I and it's actually like more sort of present than in the household I grew up with where mm-hmm. it was sort of like I didn't see a lot of arguing mm-hmm. and there's part of me that that like thinks it's good for our kids to see two grown-ups who love each other disagreeing with one another yes. as long as we make sure that they see the repair, you know, yes. and explain, "Oh, Mommy and Daddy were just disagreeing about that." You know, did, did you notice? Yes, you know, da-da-da-da. and we we like have a conversation about it so that they can see that And I don't know if I'm doing it as a parent. I hope I'm doing it as a parent. Um, (laughs) Is is to just like create an awareness that loving relationships include conflict, and it's about Mm. how you deal with conflict in a way. You know how you deal with conflict together, and then how you repair and how you how you do make room for both people to feel heard. Often, you know, like I I I actually think it's more important to have both people. Feel heard than for there to be less conflict. And so I mm. think it's one thing that I thought a lot about was like writing this book about talking about hard things is like, um, I I really want to like use the phrase, oh, I hear what you're saying. I think I disagree, you know, to say like, mm. I hear what you're saying. Mm-hmm. I see it differently. And mm-hmm. for both those things to be allowed and and invited in. It, maybe that's... Sometimes in my mind, it's like, I get this sort of like, especially when I'm arguing with my husband, who is a man, um, <laughs> you know, and I am a woman. Like When you're arguing with a man, as a woman who was raised in the 80s and 90s in the aughts in the US, like, you know, I very quickly can get that like... Uh, you know, like this sort of like feminist, like you're not, you're trying to invalidate my point of view. So so it's very important to me to feel like I am, there's space for me to articulate my point of view. Right. So long story short, when that's an important value, it means that I'm not gonna like swallow if I disagree. I'm gonna try to like work it out and hash it out, and the kids see it. And so then it's like. What do they see when we're hashing it out? They see us disagreeing. They see us figuring out, you know, sometimes it's like, ooh, ooh, ooh. you know, they see the sort of like musicality of what can happen when there's a disagreement. And then, you know, we really make an effort to like make sure they see the repair at the end, which is like, even if we don't end up agreeing at the end, mm-hmm. we come back around and say, you know, we love each other. We disagree about this thing. <laughs>
0: You know. right yeah you're fostering this environment of that that celebrates autonomy but also embraces lack of control so like meaning you can't because what a lot of these conver- these difficult conversations I feel that people brush up against it kind of what you're what you're what you touch on is that some people are afraid of losing control in that conversation or losing control of maybe their own words, yeah. their own selves. Or
1: losing face. I mean, that's something I struggle with. I have pride. Right. And I can get defensive. <laughs> but like, when you're like, oh, wait, maybe it's okay if you see something differently than I do. Right. Can I create space for both those things to be true? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that does take some surrender.
0: Yeah. And that was something we realized early on before we decided we were like, I mean, I knew she, I knew she was a mother when we started, when we were friends and then when we started dating and... I knew where I knew her background and her life growing up, and she knew about mine. And we both knew we don't want something we say to the other person to remind that other person of this previous life. Like, I don't, I'm always very careful to not raise my voice because Mm -hmm. that's something that uh, a raised voice was, is huge for me if I feel it. Because once that starts, I can my voice will just naturally kind of raise because I'm feeling not heard. I'm feeling that like that child who is mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. being lectured and yelled at and screamed mm-hmm. at or, or threatened in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah, you're you're it sounds like you're obviously fostering that safe environment. That's I mean that's great.
1: I hope. I mean that's the effort, you know. You you try. Like that's the thing as you know being being around kids like every day it's like this is my intention and there's mm-hmm moments where you fall short of your intention, and then you just try to try again, you know? And make sure you loop back around and tell them how much you love them, even
0: even when you're not your best self. Very true. Uh, I'm learning a lot about tantrums and meltdowns.
1: <laughs> I taught my kids the term hangry, because Ooh. I'm like, you seem hangry. So now they'll say that to each other. You you do you need a <laughs> snack, you seem hangry. <laughs> that's,
0: that's cute. We've been talking about like low blood sugar and you mm-hmm. haven't eaten for a while. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's those really basic things that as a child, I wanted to rail against uh, good sleep, good food, the things that as an adult you're like, that's almost ultimate wisdom is knowing you You know know nothing except for those two things sleep and food
1: yeah and water
0: and water obviously Mm -hmm. yeah so here's a great quote i thought you might like because you know you've talked about death uh Mm -hmm. to death Uh, (laughs) i don't think that's a compliment (laughs) Uh, no, no. I mean, that's probably one of my favorite things to talk about. That okay. was, That's a very defining <laughs> thing for many of my many of my friendships in my life. Uh, Kenneth Patchen had said, if I can remember correctly, there are so many little dimes that it doesn't matter which of them is death. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And in that instance, he was talking about all the dyings within your own body. There's actual Mm -hmm. death, but there are things that just change and alter and how do we perceive death in terms of the finality of something and the decaying Mm -hmm. of something. Mm -hmm. Is there Mm -hmm. a little dying or something in your life that you find that you obsess about to some degree or something that really fascinates with you, even if you're never gonna become an expert on it, even if you're never gonna fully understand it, but it just gnaws at you.
1: I'm I'm talking to you from The office space where I've been since I moved out to California in 2016. And um, I'm losing the lease on this office in three days. Mm -hmm. And like the office is basically everyone else has moved out. Mm -hmm. I'm still coming until March 31st because I'm like such a creature of habit and Mm -hmm. in denial of losing this spot where I've done, you know, a lot of work in this room, like, wrote. Wrote a lot of my book in this room. I like did a lot of writing and edits and team meetings in this room. So I've been thinking a lot about change, especially like the disruption of routine and Mm -hmm. how I like try to avoid it at all costs is just my nature. Mm -hmm. Even though I can see in my life that the periods of greatest growth and like interesting development and expansion have been when I have had routines die you know Mm -hmm. like shedding of routines Mm -hmm. so i'm just kind of thinking about that like what is it about me that like why do i white knuckle routines like coming into an empty depressing office that's been half moved out of for like six weeks now why do i keep going here
0: here i'm going (laughs) to rotate my screen so you can see the mess that i that i hid because i started tearing (laughs) apart my office the other day and, and because it's in a state of change and because there are mm-hmm. things that I, when I moved in here, I was like, I'm gonna throw in the closet. And then yesterday when I was looking for a hammer to hang something in another room, and I ended up just now I'm, now I'm dealing with the thing that I didn't deal with like six months ago.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, so you understand, yeah. Very much so. Um, yeah, I, I will change when I'm, my back is against the wall and I have no choice and it's, the deadline is upon us. But other, like I will resist it until
0: that point. There's still more conversation ahead. We'll be right back after our final commercial break. You are listening to Storybound with author Anna Sale, we're talking about our book, Let's Talk About Hard Things, as well as life, the universe, and everything.
1: Like you, you know, I like going to the store and, like, having a little moment of intimacy with somebody in the line behind me. You know, like, I, f- right. I feel great joy when that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I live in a in a place where that's not really part of the culture, you're supposed to just like get through the Trader Joe's line. <laughs> Shut up, Anna. You know, <laughs> but I want to I want to make a friend. Yeah. Um, so I have that part of me. I also have a part of me that is a is a kind of like uh, I was one of those like um, sort of just like classic teenagers who like all my mixtapes, every song had a message. Everything was like, (laughs) it's about something. It's going to make you feel something. And so I feel like I also thought of conversation that way. Like I was, I'm like a go deep, go hard friend. You know, I'm not a like person who circulates all around the party. I'm somebody who makes, you know, one, buddy new buddy that we know each other's life story in the corner by the end of the night and I think that's just like just just like what the way that I like to connect
0: do you travel the same way when you go to a new place do you go to just a local restaurant bar park and I mean is or or do you do go to the places that everyone else goes to
1: well, you're making me miss the time in my life when I could like go to a local bar when I was
0: traveling. I know. I'm, I'm, not, I'm,
1: s- I'm not currently in that life phase. I will tell you, I was thinking about this the other day, because it's so interesting to me. In the, during the 2012 election, I did all these road trips all around um, and talked to swing state voters, and I... I can remember going to some local bar in Columbus and sitting, and I, I think I might have interviewed this guy, but mostly we were just like having a beer at the bar next to each other and we talked and you know, talking politics, talking about Ohio, talking about all sorts of things. Yeah. Um, and it was probably like August, uh, and I can remember on election night, he sent me a text and was like, I told you this was how it was gonna go, like da-da-da-da-da. Mm-hmm. Like, And I can remember. I can still remember. It still makes me so happy that this random dude who, like, we talked over a beer months before, that like he remembered our conversation and I remembered our conversation, and he wanted to reach out. And it wasn't like a flirty thing at all. It was like just a like, just a sincere like. I remember that encounter, and I, Mm -hmm. I thinking about you, and oh, you remembered. You know, like it made me really happy. So Mm -hmm. I, I like that. That kind of way of traveling, and um, you know, thinking about that, you're, you're, these encounters, even if they're very short-lived, like you're you're making memories together.
0: Yeah, there was a gentleman who would sit outside this coffee shop, and he would always be smoking a cigarette. And uh, I, I believe he was houseless. My own, I, and I and I always make a point to talk to people on the street, or if 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 they're homeless around here, because my my when I started getting to know my dad more as an adult, because I didn't know him for like a good seventeen years of my life after after I was five or whatever, like. he was he lived on the streets so I started just kind of looking at like homeless people almost like sir not surrogate fathers but because it was really more of a caregiver relationship it was me being there for him in many ways Mm. so like there was a guy I'd given an apple to outside he wanted money but I said I just got this lunch but you can have my apple and then it was probably two months later go to the coffee shop same guy's in there and he recognizes me and starts he he doesn't speak full English and he's he he mentions apples so he i know he remembers what i gave him mm-hmm. and he's really excited and he wants to start talking about other kinds of food that i like and then he just looks jazzed and he walks out and it's it's made an impression on me because this person who originally, if I'd never mm-hmm. talked to him, I thought I, I I, could have made whatever assumptions about maybe uh, about him, but now I have this very significant interaction where he just feels jazz because he just got to talk to somebody. Somebody yeah. acknowledged him and he acknowledged me and it actually felt meaningful in, in ways that n- normal relationships that I have have not affected me like that. It yeah. just had this, yeah. And that's what really shapes our world and how we perceive it—it's not all this other stuff that's around it, and I—and it's really easy to for for people to forget right now. I think that like those in-person interactions or with a random stranger could be pretty defining for your personality and just how it shapes how it yeah, shapes the world. Yeah, it feels good. Yes,
1: you know, just that like, oh, I see you, and you see me. Like, it's just so elemental, you know. Yeah, um, and it's the opposite of what you feel when you're like. Get a tweet, favorite or something. <laughs> you know, it's like. It's I mean, like... you
0: get a dopamine, I guess, for, right. from that. You know? but it's like
1: you're you're chasing that actual feeling of being like, oh, you're the Apple guy. You know. <laughs> like...
0: Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I'm the Apple guy in his life. Yeah. I so uh, appreciate you chatting me with me for about random stuff for like this long. Um, <laughs> last question here. What's something you'll never try, but you really want to?
1: um, this is like uh I would really like to I'm like very curious about this part of me i would I would like really like to be a country star that's singing in like an a, an like an amphitheater, yeah, or like a no, an arena, like a large venue. I would like to know what that feels like.
0: Okay, so we can actually make that happen on this show. Okay. Do you have do you have a song you sing to your kids ever? Do you have anything you ever made up? Uh yeah. Do you have do you have like two lines? Do you mind singing for me on the mic? Oh, let's see.
1: Hang on. Um I'm trying to think there's some things that are too private. Uh I'm going to sing. <laughs> you know like a lullaby. I don't like there's uh, there's like ones that I changed the names to be family names and things like that. Um Okay, ready?
0: <clears throat> I'm ready.
1: Do you know that Lucinda Williams song, Passionate Kisses? I don't. I wish I did. Um, she wrote it, and then I think Mary Chapin Carpenter did it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the the Mary Chapin Carpenter one got famous first, but Lucinda's is, like, more just has that, like, raw edge. But it's, like, it's all, she lists all these things that she really wants, and then the chorus mm-hmm. is... Shouldn't I have this, shouldn't I have this, shouldn't I have all of this and Passionate kisses, passionate kisses, passionate kisses from you
0: I really admire that you just did that. Most people would, would not sing on would not sing on command. I
1: I want to make sure ba- I'm telling you the correct information about that. I think that I saw her sing it live. <laughs> Passionate Kisses lyrics. Oh yeah. Is it too much to ask? I want a comfortable bed that won't hurt my back. And then it goes the part that I, that was really fun to see. Oh yeah. Is it too much to demand? I want a full house and a rock and roll band. Hands that will run out of ink and quiet, cool, quiet, and time to think. It's just like a really good song about like the things that we ought to all be entitled to, you know?
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. <laughs> I, I. So wait, how are you y- going to
1: get me into an arena? <laughs>
0: I'm I'm going to I'm going to in post cuz I do all the sound and the and the mixing and the cutting for the show. So Oh
1: man, if you could also send me like AI or VR goggles where where I can take it in and just like really yeah. like
0: let's make it happen it. i'll find a v i'll find some vr goggles and 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 a developer to help me bring this to life sure you don't have other things to do jude but this is, this is really should be at the top of your list oh uh, i i yeah i have way too many things on my list but i i really super pre- this is the only chat i have this week and i really super appreciated being able to chat with you sure you know i you generally go in to talking with someone the same way I would with someone on the street. Like, you don't have the privilege of just talking to, you know, your cashier and having a nice conversation with them. You you can't look, you can't type their name into Google and like learn things about them. And I, you know, I can learn some things about you and I learned a little, but I really wanted to learn about you with you. So I appreciate you doing that. Sure.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks to Anna for chatting with me. You can buy a copy of her book, Let's Talk About Hard Things, available now at your local bookseller. You can also listen to her podcast, Death, Sex, and Money, from our friends at WNYC Studios. Thank you to Catboy and Lauren Pierce from Simon & Schuster and Epidemic Sound. Production assistance by Matt Keeley, Joni Deutsch, Madison Richards, and Morgan Swift from the Podglomerate. Social media help from Sylvia Beltill. Our production coordinator is Jordan Aaron. Our mixing engineer is Tim Carplus. Editing, sound design, scoring, arranging, and hosting are done by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are myself, Jeff Umbro of the Podglomerate, and Justin Alvarez of LitHub. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at StoryBoundPod. You can also tweet at me directly at Jude Brewery. New episodes are every Tuesday. See you then.
1: This is fun. Um, I'm gonna go uh, see a friend. I have a babysitter after school today, so I'm gonna see a friend. I have a four o'clock hang, which is not a common thing in my life these days. It feels pretty special. My friend with a roof deck. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We might even drink a beer out of a bottle.